HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here, and uh, we're having a special cider show today. There's, there's a great new book out called Cider Planet, and it's by Claude Jolissure, and he will pronounce his name for us. And we have two other guests, um, Paige from Boutique Wines in Fishkill, New York, and Adrian. Uh, to me, he's famous cider selfies and hard cider guys on Instagram, so... We're going to dive in with Claude because he's in Quebec, and we want to make sure that we get get him on uh, with the internet and everything. So, Claude, welcome to the show. Tell us about your journey from your first book to this book, Cider Planet, because we're all your fans. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> the the first book, New Cider Maker's Handbook, was really a book for teaching how to make cider and I wrote it uh, almost 10 years ago I started it was released about eight years ago and at the time that was really needed there was really uh, not much uh, information available on how to make good cider so I tackled that on that first book and uh, it was quite successful, actually. A lot of people enjoyed that book. So uh, after that, I started being invited all around the world to for different events, uh, like in Australia, Austria, France, England, Spain. And uh, people wanted to have me for conferences and other things like that. So along those travels, I met a lot of great cider makers. I interviewed them. I took pictures. I accumulated quite a lot of material. And at a certain point, I thought, well, I could make another book with all that material, uh, presenting great cider makers all around the world. 
talking about the traditions in the old traditional cider making regions of Europe. And uh, there's a lot of interesting material in there. So uh, that's how it started. And um, well, it ended up as a new book, which is just out uh, these days. So why did you call it the Cider Planet? Oh, that came from a conversation I had with one, one of my good friends. And uh, we were discussing about international ciders and uh, how they were very different one from the other. But at the same time, there was a lot of similarities uh, in the character of those people, how simple they were. And at a certain, it was a French guy, so at a certain point we said, well, uh, la planète cidre est bien petite, uh, meaning that the cider planet is quite small. As it's not difficult to know pretty much all the important people and to be aware of all everything that's happening. And the idea of Cider Planet just stayed like that, and we kept on uh, calling it uh, uh, Cider World as Cider Planet. Uh, I couldn't explain why, but it just happened. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, in the intro to your book, you, you cover a lot of basic, basic questions that come up all the time in retail and, and restaurants is how do you define good cider? How do you define cider to, to people? It's difficult. And as you say, I tried to tackle this. And really the other thing with this book is that the audience, the target audience is a bit wider. While the first book was really targeted to cider makers, this one is also targeted to people who will serve the cider, the sommeliers or pommeliers or people that work in a cider tasting room and things like that so that they can answer questions that could be asked by customers. And that's why I talk a lot about cider styles, modern styles, traditional styles, and um, also what is cider and uh, what is cider it's not everybody that agrees on a definition, to be frank. Um, I have my own opinion on this. I think there are quite a few ciders on the market that should not be called ciders, but that's an opinion. Others may think differently. <laughs> well, let's let's go to Paige. So Paige, you know, you're familiar with his first book, uh, just tell us about some of the like education that you've had, because you, you, right now you really run in New York probably the best. You're a wine and, and liquor store in Fishkill, New York, Boutique Wines. But you're really recognized as one of the top cider retailers in New York State. Yeah, I mean, Sue, when we opened our shop, the whole um, gist of the shop was to be sort of the FAO Schwartz of cider in the world. We We wanted a shop that we felt people from around the world would come to if they were looking for cider. And that was sort of our end goal. Uh, we're still working toward that five years in. Um, but in terms of my education in, ter in terms of cider, I started off just as a cider enthusiast. I love the product. I love the category. And I wanted to learn more about it. 
So I went to local cider makers in the Hudson Valley, and there are quite a number here, um, and gathered information from them. Some of them that gave me some of the best information was like Carl from Orchard Hill and Elizabeth from Hudson Valley Farmhouse really helped me learn a little bit more about the category and sort of got my feet wet. And then after that, I decided to take a course with the American Cider Association to work toward their, in their degree program, um, entry level would be certified cider professional. Um, and Claude's book is one of the required readings for that, which is super helpful in terms of understanding how cider is made, even though I'm a retailer and I don't actually produce the cider, but understanding what goes into making the cider and how the cider is made, that's paramount to understanding what's coming out in the bottles and what's coming out of my tap system so that I can explain that to the customer. And then I moved on to certified pommelier, which is a relatively new certification that the American Cider Association started with. And there are about 40 of us in the world at the moment. Uh, and I just passed that test. Uh, I just got my notification actually last week. Oh, congratulations. Wow. Thank you. That's great. Hey, um, since we're trying to get Claude to talk before he loses his internet, <laughs> hopefully he won't. Um, I bet you have a question for, from reading his first book and studying for exams. What's a common question that, that 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 someone might have for Claude about cider or cider making? Well, I think people are confused. I mean, one of the most common questions that I get in terms of cider is, is cider a beer? And I understand essentially the difference, but maybe Claude can explain it in a different way that would make people understand essentially the difference between the cider making process. And there is a big difference between the cider making process and the beer making process, but I'm going to throw that over to Claude. Well, actually cider is more a wine than a beer uh, because it's a, it's a fruit, it's a fruit wine. And uh, essentially beer, uh, I've never, made beer so it, it's difficult for me to compare the process uh, but beer I know implies some heating uh, the mash and uh, a lot of other processes that are quite different from making uh, wine from some fruit either grape wine uh, or other fruit wines or cider which is an apple wine uh, so really, we're much closer to the wine process making than from the beer process. Uh, but as I said, I, I have no experience in making beer, so I cannot help you much there. <laughs> I know there are some ciders that are made by beer people, mm -hmm. and they sort of try to make a cider... Uh, taste a bit like beer by adding uh, hops to it and um, well some customers enjoy that uh, I can't uh, I can't comment a lot more than on this but uh, personally I'm more of a purist in other words uh, if you need to add something else than apples into your cider, whether it's hops or other flavorings, 
I think the beverage should have another name than cider. Yeah. Uh, just as if you had a grape wine and you added hops to a grape wines or raspberries or some other fruits. It's not a it's not a wine, a red wine or white wine anymore. It's something else. It might be good. I don't argue on this, but it's just a different product. Yeah, Claude, just you're you're in Quebec. Um, you know, there's different traditions of of cider making, and that's a big part of your new book, Cider Planet. Uh, being in Quebec. You know, do you feel there's an affinity with the French traditions? And what are those traditions um, that that are, are there in the world that, that you've visited and that you, you, you respect? Well, I've visited pre pretty much all the traditional cider-making regions. The, let's say the cradles of cider-making, which are in Europe. Uh, we're talking here about Spain, Germany, France, and England, parts of those countries. Uh, these are really the, the basic, the four basic original regions where cider making started. And these four regions have pretty much established a different cider style, each his own. A Spanish style cider will be different from a German style cider, from a French style cider, and from an English style cider. We have really four very distinct traditional styles that come from these four traditional original cider making regions. After that, if we talk just cider and not Perry, because Perry, we could make some analogies. Uh, if we talk just cider, we then have the newer, we can call them the modern cider making regions or the newer or emerging cider making regions, which are everywhere else in the world. Some in Europe, in Russia, in America, in Australia, uh, in Asia, Japan, uh, everywhere else in the world where the apple tree grows, uh, we're seeing emerging cider, uh, cider making uh, places. But these places, uh, they have a lot of work to do in order to establish their own cider styles. It's just starting, you know. So we may try to bring some influence from those old traditional European regions, or we can try and invent our own style. Uh, to come back to your question, more, more exact questions, in Quebec, we have not seen any influence from the French cider making traditions. Uh, the reason for this is really when the French came in Quebec, this was before the uh, cider boom in France. So at that time, in early 1600, uh, cider was not very uh, popular in France yet. It was more beer and cervoise. 
that were popular. So really, uh, if we look in Quebec, the first alcohol making uh, industry was beer. It was not cider. And interestingly, it, uh, cider started a little more when the English uh, took over uh, Canada by the 1760s. They kicked the French out and the English uh, took over. And interestingly, those English settlers did bring more of the cider, of the English cider tradition in here. That's very interesting. Interesting, yes. isn't it? Thank you, Claude. Now let's introduce our other guest, Adrian. So Adrian, uh, so great to have you. You made a name as a an Instagram star with uh, three, <laughs> three guys and a cider, but you're very serious about you. cider and, and you're studying cider. So tell us a little bit about you and some of your aspirations for for cider. Oh man! So first of all, thank you for having me, and I definitely have a couple questions for uh, for Claude. I mean, <laughs> I'm going through the the CINA training right now for uh, Cider Making Foundation, and um, yeah, the way it started, my friends and I during COVID, you know, wanted to take up a hobby. We started reviewing ciders. We really, honestly, knew nothing about cider at the time, uh, but that's how it started. We started, you know, reviewing ciders. And had this idea as the world started to open up mid-pandemic, let's travel to some cideries. We didn't know cidery was a thing. We knew wineries and breweries, but there's cider mills, cider orchards. And my friends and I decided to go out, do free videography for the cider makers, interview them, start a, start a show on YouTube. And, uh, you know, some of the best years of my life was the last two years we traveled around. We actually did recently go to Canada, so episodes will be coming out for that soon. But, uh, oh, terrific. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, we traveled all over. We even went to visit Paige <laughs> over at Boutique Swine Spirits and Ciders, Fishkill, New York. But uh, yeah, traveled all over the U.S., a little bit of Canada. Um, before I knew it, I started finding this real passion for cider, and I wanted to be able to actually have a good, you know, something good to say about it, learn more about the switch history and stuff. So started looking online and, and reading about it so much. I uh, recently entered for the minority scholarship to do the cider making certification and got chosen for it. So I'm in the process of doing that. I've been studying a lot. Um, actually, so one question for you. Wait, for you, Adrian, which, which program is that? The CINA. The Cider Institute of North America, right? Yes, yes. Okay. The cider Institute of North America. That's great. Congratulations. So, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I Oh, my gosh. I haven't gone to school in about five years and... I was like a kid when I found out that I got accepted and I was super excited. But I definitely, um, you know, I've been reading a lot about the history behind cider and I know that Quebec has a lot of rich history in cider. And something I noticed when I did go to Canada recently, um, I went to Ontario specifically, but there is such a rich cider scene in Canada. And I don't know, it felt like every, every 20 minutes I could find another cidery, another pub or bar that had a lot of cider in it. It's so different here in, in the States. You know, you go to a certain restaurant or bar, maybe you find one thing on the menu and it's something that's mass manufactured. It's not, you know, craft, if somebody wants to call it that. But so I had a question about that for you, Claude. Um, I know prohibition in general for both the U.S. and for Canada really hit the cider industry hard. But it seems that Canada maybe recovered, and maybe that's just me assuming, but it seemed like Canada recovered quicker 
and the, the industry exploded a little bit faster in Canada. Why do you think that is? Prohibition, yes. Prohibition killed, prohibition killed the cider industry in the States. That's clear. But at that time, uh, there was really a much less cider making in Quebec and in Eastern Canada than there was in the States. I mean, by the 1850s, it is said uh, about New England that there was people drank more cider than all other beverage combined. Can you imagine this? That all other beverage, that means milk, wine, tea, water, coffee, uh, you name it. Combine all of this and you drink less than cider. That was the situation in the States, well, in, in New England uh, by 1840, 1850. We never had that up here in Canada. Uh, we've always been a beer drinking country with a little bit of cider, but never anything comparable to that. And what happened in the States is that later, by the end of the 1800s, the temperances movement came in and some German immigrants also started making beer and uh, then prohibition killed all the cider making activity. And after prohibition, it's beer that picked up. Uh, one of the reasons for this is that uh, it's much faster. You just have uh, a field, uh, you sow your barley, and uh, next fall you're ready to brew your beer. But if you plant an orchard, it's gonna take 15 years before you can make this sizable amount of cider. So that's one of the main reasons why in the States beer picked up after prohibition. But in Quebec, we, we never had such a rich cider tradition. Uh, so it, I can't explain it really. I've asked the question to some historians that I know who's interested in, in, those, uh, in those subjects and he, he had no answer for me. He couldn't tell me why there was such a difference between Quebec and New England as far as cider was concerned. Yeah. We don't know. No, that, that's a good intro. And, and Adrian, just for our listeners, um, you know, prohibition in the United States, it was different in other countries. And I, I don't know everything about Canada, but I do know that much of the whiskey that was brought into, you know, upscale speakeasies and hotels in New York was made in Canada. So I don't think that the prohibition there was as uh, complete as it was in the United States. So let's go to another question. Um, when we talk about cider and trying to define it, you know, what, what's so hard is, again, the, the terms. And I, I like that you mentioned in your intro, and we're not going to talk too much about it because I like that you want to talk about traditional ciders. But you say cider, and then you say this word, Alco pop cider. Um, and you mentioned a cider from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is it cider if it's water and flavorings? Yeah, this is what I said. For me, it's something else. And uh, it, it should not be called cider. The same way that if you had, for example, a mixture of uh, 
a bit of grape concentrate, some water, some flavoring, and other ingredients, and you mix all of this and you ferment it, would you call that a red wine? I guess you couldn't. I think it's called barefoot. <laughs> it's called uh, wine cooler. <laughs> yeah. And then let, let's get Paige in. So Paige, let, let's go to the positive stuff because I really love that you're you're featuring all the things that, that Claude loves and writes about. What's on tap on in your, your cider tree? I mean, you really have done an amazing job of representing cider to your customers. So what's on, what's on the cider tree today? Tell us what the cider tree is. So, okay, so to give you an idea, we are the only retailer, that uh, wine and liquor retailer in New York State that has taps for cider, specifically for cider. Nobody else actually has taps in the wine or spirit uh, industry in New York other than us. We have 13, one of which is a huge tree that's uh, – basically fashioned from floor to ceiling it goes about 15 feet tall and in the trunk of that tree is a tap so jimmy's talking about my what i call my tree tap which is a cider that i feature uh with which comes literally out of the trunk of this apple tree which is now full in full bloom with just fall leaves and big apples like all over it and on that we have Orchard Hill, which is a cidery out in Orange County, which is in the Hudson Valley, about 30 minutes west of us. And the cider maker there is uh, Carl de Hoffman. Uh, and Johnny is the assistant cider maker there. And we have their red label, which is a dry cider. And they actually pay quite a bit of homage to some of the French style. Um, they're squarely influenced by that, although not keeved. Um, much drier than that, but um, they definitely pay homage to that. I really enjoy Orchard Hill. So it's a very um, dry cider and has nice apple forward notes to it. Uh, you get some cinnamon, some nutmeg, um, definitely some straight up apple on it. And then it finishes completely dry and it's delicious. And it goes right into the fall because of that nice, like crisp apple on the front. That sounds great. And I'm drinking a Farnham Hill. Uh, it's actually one of their canned ciders. And I love the story of Farnham Hill because he's done everything properly and, and, and purely uh, since the 70s when he was just planting, when he was growing apples. But it's the Farnham Hill, just the farmhouse cider in a can. It's, it's, it's tart and acidic and, and dry and pure. Um, we carry that. That's delicious. Farnham Hill makes some phenomenal ciders yeah. as well although not new york but uh really great styles of cider and squarely purist along the lines of what uh claude was talking about wow well listen we're off to a great start we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes with more questions for claude on beer sessions radio this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. 
Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here. Become a member and support us at heritageradionetwork.org. There's over 30 podcasts each week about food, cocktails, farming, and beer insider on heritageradionetwork.org. So, Paige, we were talking about cider all show, and we're with uh, the author of Cider Planet, Claude. Uh, Claude, what were you just about to say before the break? Oh, I was just about to because Paige talked about Farnham Hill Ciders, which are uh, which was founded by Steve Wood, and he's really a pioneer uh, in uh, in New England, in Northwest of the United States. Uh, he was really the first to make uh, serious ciders with true cider apples, and um, he's really a guy who broke the barriers and uh, I have a lot of uh, admiration for him you know we, we all do and he's and I know he's always taking the next generation under his wing there, there's always some up-and-coming cider maker who's going to him for knowledge uh, cuttings and and even juice um, so b- big shout out to him you know you really you really do associate with the best people um, I saw that it, you have a section in your book about going to Kazakhstan, the birthplace of, of apples. Uh-huh. What, what is this? Is it a myth? I mean, is this for real? Kazakhstan. This is where I saw you went with Ryan Burke and Peter Mitchell. Um, and Andrew Lee. Tell us about that trip. Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story just before because it's a fun story. Uh, Alex... Uh, Alexander Thomas, who is uh, who was our host over there, he's an English guy, uh, but he married a Kazakh woman, and uh, they they started to well, they lived a bit between uh, uh, France and England and Kazakhstan, but they finally installed themselves in Kazakhstan, and they're starting a cidery there now. And it's called uh, Apple City Cider, the first cider in Kazakhstan. Uh, but uh, when he first contacted me, uh, my wife also happens to be a Kazakh woman. Oh. So I told him that, and he almost fell down on his chair. You know what? <laughs> so uh, all the all the stars and all the plants were aligned for this trip. Because my wife could act as a translator, and um, she was very happy to be invited to go back to her home, to her the place where she spent her childhood. But she didn't know much about uh, the apple forest. She knew there were apple trees around her city of origin, which is Almaty, but. Uh, 
it, it wasn't known that well at the time that this was really a such a uh, high value uh, a trésor. Uh, how do you say a trésor in English? I don't remember. Something that uh, has a big value and that you hide somewhere, you know. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, yes, it is true. Uh, those forests do exist. They are at the foothills of the mountains between Kazakhstan and China. And uh, in those places, the original trees that evolved as apple trees uh, originally produced very small fruit. But uh, apparently, according to the uh, scientists, it is the local bear who bears really enjoy eating apples. But they're big animals, so they always prefer to eat bigger fruit and sweeter fruit. They're just like us. So over the centuries and millenaries, uh, bears always selected the bigger and sweeter fruit to eat. And then they sue the pips in their droppings from those trees who produced bigger and sweeter fruit. So it's the beer that actually made the selection for uh, improving the species and to get the, the apple as we know it today. So now in those forests, we do find beautiful apples, just as nice as on the market. And, but others that are smaller and bitter uh, there are some great for cider, some others are great for eating, uh, and some are just bitters. <laughs> well, that, that's an amazing story. Um, and I love that you mentioned Kazakhstan, but I, I, I've heard about it. I, I, it just seems so incomprehensible to me that this is where apples came from. Uh, and why is that? I mean, not just apples. Many... Uh, Many fruits uh, come from from there because uh, many of those fruit trees are of the rose family. Uh, the apple, uh, all the uh, the pear, the cherries, plums, and all those trees are are of the cherry family, and they all originated in in those areas. Wow, it's quite amazing. Paige, does this come up in any of your uh your studies or your 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 work? Yeah, sure. Um, the idea that apples originated in Kazakhstan is definitely an important part of, you know, what the heritage uh, is of cider and also how that moved around, not only from Asia into Europe, but then from Europe into the United States. All the history that uh, of people conquering and people, um, doing business, all of that kind of works together and kind of tells the whole story. So it's an interesting, when you're drinking cider, you're drinking history. You're literally drinking how a single tree or a single product from a tree in the middle of Kazakhstan ended up in the United States. And it's a super interesting idea that you're drinking, so many people touched that, so many people had a hand in that, so many people 
in that glass that you're drinking at the end of the day. And it's just mind boggling when you put that to your lips, like the idea that that couldn't happen without all of those things actually occurring and the odds of all of that kind of lining up. And it's wild. Wow. So Claude, when we try to define, we talked about how do you define cider, good cider, you know, there's terms like you, you wrote tradition, farm, or even harvest cider. Isn't it important to... to yeah, to in, in my book, I don't see good cider. You'll notice. Uh, I will talk about craft cider, farm cider, real cider, but I won't say that good or not good. I mean, because this is too uh, personal. I mean, some people will prefer uh, narco pop cider if they think it tastes better than uh, strong uh, Hereford uh, uh, traditional cider, which may be quite harsh, you know. So good, no good is, is not something I like to use because it's too much subject to uh, personal interpretation. Yes. And then... Um... For Adrian, I bet you have another question, now that you've been listening, because you're, you're really uh, skyrocketing up on the, on the cider world here, Adrian. For sure. Oh, man, I mean, I'm, like, actually, like, fangirling right now, listening to Claude and, you know, Paige, you guys will speak. Um, it's funny, uh, Paige actually mentioned Orchard Hill, you know, the cider tree, which I love. But uh, one, of the, one of my favorite promos comes from Orchard Hill Cider Mill and uh and they called it a 1066. It's so funny I was reading about like history behind cider and I didn't realize that 1066 reference came I, I don't know the history behind it but there was like monasteries that were making cider in St. Augustine and it wasn't until the Norman Conquest like in 1066 or something like that. Yes. I'm assuming Preach, that's the reference <laughs> it's so cool because I have almost I'm almost learning everything about cider in reverse. Like we went, we made all these trips. I met a lot of cool cider makers and cool people. And now I'm actually learning so much behind the scenes, you know, but shout out to Orchard Hill. They make amazing Cider 66 wow. promo and amazing cider in general. Thanks. Thanks. Paige Adrian. actually brought me some recently wow. at my wedding. <laughs> so, so Claude, what, what do you want to say about that? Norman conquest, the French influence in, in, in England, um, back to cider history. <laughs> well, I wasn't there, <laughs> so it's it's hard to know for sure. Um, there's a myth that says that it all came from Spain, but it's not that clear. Um, I think uh, a lot of it came from the Romans, but again, we don't have very clear writings that tell us really how it came in. Uh, apparently in Germany, it came from another branch, uh, but uh, it, it all got sort of homogenized or brought together by about a thousand years ago. Uh, some press systems, uh, we can find press systems that are almost identical uh, from France, Germany, Spain, and England. 
by the the year 1200, you know. So uh, there was some obviously communication between these four cider making poles, and they had similar technologies uh, with some differences, but essentially uh, probably all this came from the Romans who introduced the technologies that was then developed for making wine because the Romans enjoyed making wine a lot. But when they got into countries where the grapevine didn't grow that well, they probably used that technology to make cider from the apples. That's what I think. But uh, there's not much writing uh, that can confirm this. So it's, it's kind of like the bears. Nobody left records other than their droppings. I get it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I can just say that everything that I've read, basically the French and the Spanish both claim that they really had the influence, but the, there was a ton of trade route between Basque region of cider and um, Normandy. What is fascinating to me is those styles are super different. Like when you taste those two styles of cider, they taste completely different. You will definitely know if you're drinking a Basque style cider or a, a Kiev cider. Um, and they are very, very different, but they both claim kind of like the Scots and the Irish can claim, uh, put their claim on whiskey and it's always an argument. But either way, they wow. both make great products. <laughs> uh, in the same sense, you know, uh, some Basque will claim that, oh, we have exported our apples varieties to Brittany and Normandy. But it makes no sense because in Brittany, there are such bitter varieties such and such varieties don't exist in the Basque country. So that point makes no sense to me. Uh, so there's a lot of unknown and a lot of speculation. Yeah, and people do innovate and there's a lot more to it than that. But let's go back to you, Claude, because you wrote this book, you know, 10 years ago. And you're telling everyone how to make cider. But what did you do before you wrote the book? Well, before writing the first book, The New Cider Maker's Handbook, I used to go uh, at the um, Cider Days Festival in Massachusetts. I started going there in uh, early in the 2000s. I think 2002 or 2003 was the first time I was there. And I started uh, doing workshops there, showing people how to make cider. So that's uh, how I really started accumulating material. And I do uh, a talk on a certain subject. And eventually this became a chapter in the new cider makers handbook, you know. Uh, so yeah, it started with cider days. Wow, that's really cool. You know, one more thing about traditions. Uh, I really do lo love your new book, Cider Planet. Um, first of all, it's like a travel guide. I want to go to all these places. But but some things you there's a photo you said that in cider traditions you, you mentioned hand crushed apples. Now, 
describe to me the different ways people can hand crush apples because um, I couldn't picture it. I mean, crushing the apples the traditional way uh, is just with something, a big piece of wood like a softball bat or a four by four beam. And you would crush the apples in a, in a sort of a recipient. So that was the original way. But that method was improved uh, by the years uh, 1300, approximately, 13, 1400. And they designed a, a big wheel uh, that could be made either in stone or in wood. And that huge wheel was uh, turning in a circle, in a circular throw, and the horse was driving it. So these uh, systems were the first to really uh, be able to process a large quantity of apples, uh, crush, uh, because it can be a hard work to crush apples. If, uh, if you've done it manually with a manual mill, uh, it's, and if you have a lot to do, uh, it takes quite a bit of energy. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, those are the two original systems. It's only with, after that, with the Industrial Revolution by the 18, mid-1850s, that they started to design uh, mechanical systems, other more sophisticated mechanical systems to crush the apples. Wow. So back then it was, you're basically like talking about a horse horse-powered stone or wood press or stone grinding like a that's why we call it cider mill is that it cider mill uh, yes uh, well even the modern mills are mills in the sense that uh, they turn and either they grind or they shred the apples into a pumice before pressing it well, you know, also uh, just common questions from cider makers. Um, you have an appendix in the new book where you're talking about, and I think it's, for me, it's tasting cider, but acidity and, and tannin balance. Um, how do you achieve yeah. that? And, and that must be an important part of cider making, right? Well, it's an important part of cider style. Uh because each of the original traditional styles has a different balance point. And that's what I was trying to show uh, in, that, uh, in that text. And uh, if you want to make a French style cider, uh, you need to have your balance point between acids and tannins at a certain point. If not, uh, you're going to be off style. So it, it it's an important part of it. Oh yeah. No, this is a great a great start. Um, well, I, I'm not too sure what was there another part in your question that I forgot to answer or. Uh, no, I just want you to talk. That's all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can talk about something else that that we haven't we haven't discussed. 
from your book because um, what 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 do you want to talk about that we didn't ask you so far? I have a question. Good. Okay, so I haven't seen your new book, Claude, but do you go into ice cider at all since that is squarely a Canadian invention? And can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, well, uh, yes, there is a, a little section on ice cider, uh, but it's not as uh, detailed as what you have in the New Cider Maker's Handbook. New Cider Maker's Handbook is more technical, you know, in, in the cider making process, while the Cider Planet is uh, not as technical, it's more to understand uh, the concept uh, more widely, let's see. Okay, so more specifically, can you speak to iCider and the impact that Canada had on that particular category of cider and how that's made? Well, the, the iCider, yes, was invented here in Quebec by, uh, interestingly, independently by a few different people who sort of worked independently and arrived with a similar product about the same moment. And then they couldn't figure out which one of the two was the real inventor because they both invented it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, there are a few different ways to do it. Uh, the more common way is to freeze uh, the juice. And uh, the more, let's say, uh, elitist way or uh, for high, uh, higher quality product, you're going to freeze the apples and then extract the juice from frozen apples. Uh, Personally, I mix the two. When I do my ice cider, I will uh, freeze the apples, uh, but I won't press them when they're completely frozen because I find this is quite uh, inefficient. So I press them when they're not fully frozen, but not fully thawed yet, just sort of in between. And this gives me uh, an in-between juice, which is not strong enough, uh, not concentrated enough for making ice cider, but that is more concentrated than a fresh juice. And then I freeze this juice to concentrate it more and start my uh, ice cider with this. So that's my personal way of doing it. To anybody who is not familiar with what ice cider is, um, it is basically made the way Claude was explaining, but um, the reason why you freeze, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't make the cider, but the reason why you freeze it is basically to concentrate the flavor and take out the water. So you're basically freezing the water out of it, out of the juice, kind of the way a winemaker yeah, would do for ice cream. Well, well, physically what happens, if you have a mixture of ice, and liquid, and there is some sugar in there. The, the the liquid will be more concentrated in sugar than the ice. So the idea is to have uh, this 
mixture where we have some ice that's present with some uh, unfrozen liquid. If you separate the ice from the liquid, well, the liquid will have a concentrated sugar uh, content. So this will also concentrate the acids and the tannins and all the other flavors. But the most, the more important effect is on the sugars. Wow, great, great light intro. And Paige, what ice ciders do you have at Boutique Wine? Usually, it's classically, one of the best made in the United States would squarely be Eden's um, Eden cider, which is actually um, in the northwest corner of New York. Uh, I'm sorry, in the northwest corner of Vermont and not very far from the Canadian border. Um, Eleanor is the cider maker for that. I also have a bunch of New York ones, Eve's. Well, uh, I don't know if you're aware, as, excuse me, Paige, I mean, you might not be aware, but Ilya and I worked a lot with Quebec's uh, enologists and cider, ice cider makers when she developed her product. And, um, well, she was so close, but I knew there were some enologists from Montreal who drove to her place and gave her some uh, good uh, pointers. Yeah, squarely, she uh, definitely has the traditional Canadian style um, and uh, really runs with that within her. As an American cider maker, she, I feel, does one of the best ice ciders that I've ever had in the United States, followed by autumn who is the cider maker over at eve cidery in the finger lakes in new york she also does an incredible one there are other really good cider makers but those two are standouts and they're almost always on my shelf as long as i can get my hands on them and the other cool thing about ice cider is um when you can find a cider maker who makes a single varietal ice cider which is super fun so you can get a particular apple uh, only in the ice cider, as opposed to a blend of apples, which some of them are, and then you can get single varietals, which if you like, for example, Ashmead's kernel, which is one of my favorite cider apples as an ice cider, it's fun to be able to do that. Paige, how, how can I keep up with everything you have in your store? If you can figure that out, let me know, because I can't keep <laughs> up with everything I have in my store. We have over 300 SKUs of just cider or cider products in our store, and it's it's dizzying. Wow. Hey, but one. I have what, a question for Paige. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering, Paige, do you have a lot of uh, ciders from Europe, from England, France, Spain, Germany? I have exam. I squarely have some really cool examples from France, both Normandy uh, and Brittany. I have a little bit of German cider. I have some English cider. I have some very kick in Austrian ciders, <laughs> which is something you haven't um, touched on, but they make some pretty good cider there. I even have an Italian cider. So yes, we do represent Europe as well, because that is sort of where our heritage comes from in the United States. Okay. Oh, that's great. You're good with that. Last thing, let's get Adrian back on. Adrian, so uh, you are here with a master and you're learning about cider is where would you like to go is there one place you want to go and perhaps claude can give you some recommendations as to where to taste cider i mean 
really from a fan perspective, I I would like to go to the UK. I actually my first introduction to cider was in London. Um, I was down there for you know a couple of days, and I had my first cider there, and I thought it was beer. I didn't know what cider was, but uh, now that I do know what cider is. I would love to go back. One of my goals is to eventually open up something called the Cider House, similar to what Boutiques is doing. Uh, this would be like a little cider pub with ciders from all over the country, all over the world, uh, Canadian, London, France, everywhere, Italy. And uh, I mean, I guess any destination spot that, that you would uh, recommend, Claude, I would love to hear from. Well, sure. Uh, England, because there's a question of language, you know, uh, a lot of people like to go to France, but then you have a language barrier, maybe. England is great. I mean, you can go, but do go out of London and go in Somerset, uh, Herefordshire, and all those little places and uh, visit the cideries, talk to the cider makers. I mean, this is the greatest experience you can have. Uh, probably more than in uh, in the big cities. Uh, well, yes, in the big cities you're going to have bars that will serve things, but really, cider is a country beverage. Uh, it was said that uh, in the old days, cider was the people, the country people, uh, the drink of the country people, while beer was the drink of the city people. And uh, I think it's very true. And uh, really to appreciate the cider, we need to go to, to the country people who make it in the country and small villages and places like that. Wow. So it can be anywhere, uh, either if you go in Germany or in Spain or in France, uh, it's really in the country in small village that you'll have the, the richest uh, experience, I think. Wow. Well, I'll tell you guys, this has been a really special episode talking about Cider Planet, the book, with the author, Claude. Claude, how do you say your last name? Jolicoeur. Claude Jolicoeur and Page of Boutique Wines. And <laughs> tell us. What, Claude? I remember the first time I was in Cider Days, I met Judith Maloney, who at the time with her husband, Terry, they were the initiators, they were the founders of that festival, the Cider Days. And I was introduced to Judith, and then I whispered in her ear, Je m'appelle Claude Jolicoeur. <laughs> and this stayed as a, as a running gag between the two of us since those days. I still enjoy Judith very much, and I'm going to see her again uh, this fall. And uh, I'm still going to tell her whisper in her ear. <laughs> Je m'appelle Claude Jolicard. Je m'appelle. Well, Claude, one time, when, 20 years ago, I did a, I was on a rap song, and my line was, Je m'appelle whoop-ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. This has been an awesome show. I'm going to give a shout-out. If you want to meet Adrian, Hard Cider Guys, and Cider Self, he's, he's going to be at our, our Cider Week event in New York City in two weeks, October 6th in Bushwick, Brooklyn, Cider Feast NYC. We've been doing that event since 2014. Uh, we're one of the first places that, that hosted uh, Cider Week events over 10 years ago in New York City. So check it out, Cider Feast NYC, the website. It's either jimmys 043com or ciderfeasthq.com. And 
Paige has been a, a big fan and supporter as well over the years. So I want to thank you guys for coming in. Paige of Boutique Wines, uh, Adrian of Hard Cider Guys, and Claude, je m'appelle Claude Julie. <laughs> the author of Cider Planet, you got to buy this book. Thanks to Armin, our engine, our engineer, Alex Tran, our producing intern. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.